0: If I were to ask you what you would identify as one of the major problems in our culture, in our world, in our country today, what would you identify as? What would you say is the, the thing that we've lost, the thing that we struggle with, the thing that we deal with, um, the kind of shaping who we are, what we think, what we do? Well, I, I think we get a lot of different answers. Lack of respect. Well, that's gone out the window. Um, any sort of sense of kindness. Um, any sense of otherness. You know, we're very much about ourselves um, in, in a lot of ways. Um, we've lost any sense of order, you know, in our world. Priorities. Um, um, we've we've have all these issues, these arguments, these fights, they happen on social media, they happen in the news, they happen on the streets. Um, But I would argue, I think, that the biggest issue, the issue that really is driving all the others, is we've lost any sense of trust. We don't trust anybody. We don't trust our neighbor. We don't trust our government, we don't trust elections, we don't trust police, we don't trust our teachers, we don't trust our friends, we don't trust our spouses, we don't trust uh, our children, we don't trust our parents, we don't trust We don't trust anybody. And I think it's that lack of trust that is undermining everything else that we deal with. Um, our selfishness. Are we selfish? Because we've learned over time not to trust other people. And we got to take care of ourselves, is the mentality that sets in. Why don't we trust uh, you know, uh, our government or the news or whatever? Because we believe we have found places where they've let us down, where they have failed us in some way, shape, or form. And so we don't trust them, and so therefore we don't respect them. And this leads to this building animosity, this anger, real easy to be angry with somebody you don't trust. Why would you be otherwise? You see them as being what? Being out to destroy you, being out to hurt you, being out to undermine you in some way. As we move through the promises concerning the coming Messiah in the Old Testament, we've seen different aspects of who this Messiah would be that he is one of us, that he is for all of us, that he is uh, the king, the lion of Judah, that he is the eternal God. We've seen all of these images and all these pictures, but today I want to look at a prophecy. It's it's probably one of the best-known prophecies, uh, promises concerning uh, the coming Messiah it's uh, made its way into some of our greatest musical pieces that um, we we hear this time of year uh, handles Messiah mentions this particular passage quotes it so forth um, but at the heart of this passage is the issue of trust turn with me if you will to Isaiah chapter 9 And in Isaiah chapter 9, where we are, we're we're in a section of Isaiah's book known as the book of of Emmanuel. It's a a subsection to the greater book as a whole. And basically what it's dealing with from chapter 7 through 12 is um, Isaiah's confronting of Ahaz for Ahaz's lack of trust in Yahweh passage starts in chapter 7 with what's known as the Syro-Ephraimatic Conflict. There are two armies, Syria and Israel, marching against Judah. Okay, So the northern kingdom of Israel has joined with Syria to its north and they're both marching against Judah. And uh, Ahaz is, is consumed by fear. He doesn't know what to do. He doesn't know where to turn. He doesn't know what steps to take? How do I handle this situation, this circumstance? And Isaiah comes to him and he says, God's got this. Don't worry about it. This, this is not going to go anywhere. These two armies are not going to be successful. And just to prove that, ask any sign you want. Any miracle you want from God, God will give it to you to prove to you that these two nations are not going to be successful. But Ahaz, in his faithlessness, in his lack of trust, says, nah, I don't want to bother God with that. And Isaiah says essentially there in chapter 7, God is going to make the throne of David desolate because of your lack of trust. The king who's coming is going to be born outside of Jerusalem. He's going to be born outside of the good situation that you presently enjoy. We'll look at that more next week, that particular aspect of it. But what Ahaz has proven is that he doesn't trust God. And so the book of Emmanuel is Isaiah's attempt to prove to Ahaz, to prove to to Judah, that they can, in fact, trust God. That God's going to do some miracles right there in their midst, right there in front of them. Right there in their time, and in, in their day, in their setting, God's going to do some things that, that they wouldn't have believed previously. He's going to give them some signs. He's going to give them some indications. But as you move into chapter 9 of this particular section, Isaiah basically says, but what God's going to do here in front of you, in your setting, in your environment, is." Small compared to what he's ultimately going to do, because what he's ultimately going to do is he's going to he's going to send this king, this Messiah, who's beyond your imagination, and we're introduced to that idea here in chapter nine, beginning in verse one. We read nevertheless, the gloom of the distressed land will not be like that of the former times, when he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the future, he will bring honor to the way of the sea, to the land of east of the Jordan, and to Galilee of the nations. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. A light has dawned on those living in the land of darkness. You have enlarged the nation and increased its joy. The people have rejoiced before you as they rejoice at harvest time, and as they rejoice when dividing spoils. For you have shattered their oppressive yoke, and the rod of their shoulders, the staff of their oppressor, just as you did on the day of Midian. For every trampling boot of battle and the bloody garments of war will be burned as fuel for the fire. For a child will be born for us, a son will be given to us, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be named Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God. Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. The dominion will be vast and its prosperity will never end. He will reign on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish and sustain it with justice and righteousness from now on and forever. The zeal of the Lord of armies will accomplish this. Isaiah here is addressing the court and he he slips into into song there in verse two uh, you notice in your if you have a modern translation you notice that the the structure of the writing there changes. verse one is in paragraph form, but in verse two you see it slips into this this kind of stratified ordering that's that's there to indicate to you that what has happened is Isaiah has moved from sharing a narrative, sharing a story, to singing a song. That he's so moved by this revelation, he's so moved by this prophecy, so moved by this moment that he breaks out in worship, talking about the great things that God is going to accomplish. And he builds a case for the fact that the one who's coming is a Savior that we can trust. Now, he starts, as I said, with this narrative portion here in verse 1. And and what he tells us about ourselves, the the story that he starts with, the narrative of our lives, of our existence, is simply this. We all dwell in darkness. We all dwell in darkness. That is the the first truth uh, of this passage, the darkness of, of sin itself. Sin has reaped harvest in our lives, in our existence, in our world that is dark, dreary, dangerous, troublesome. How often do we find ourselves saying, if God's a good God, how can this happen? Or if if God's on his throne, why does... Do these things take place? Why are are these things occurring in our world? Why does God let this happen? What did I do to deserve this? We find ourselves over and over returning to those phrases. Why? Because sin has a grip on this world. And that grip is one that brings us darkness, confusion. Is there any more confusing, troubling place to be than in the dark? Think about it. Both figuratively and literally, literally, when you are in the dark, what is your stance? Right? You're in your house, you know, you go to get something in your house, and you have to you have to turn off the light to but to the lights on the other side of the room from where you have to go? And so you turn off that light and immediately you widen your stance just a little bit. You know, getting all football-like, I guess. Widen your stance just a little bit. Your hands come out. What? Just in case there's something you don't see there. Okay? You don't want to stub your toe, so you're going to walk kind of little bitty steps so you don't stub your toe on something that you didn't see there. You got your hands out so you don't run into walls, those sorts of things. At the very least, you're You're walking very gingerly. At the very least, you've changed your cadence to get through that dark room. Why? Because it's confusing. This is a room, most often, you've spent most of your life in. You've been there. You know what that room contains and what's in it. And yet you still get uneasy in the darkness. That's true in life, no matter how long you've lived it. Just a few days from 54. I remember when I thought 40 was old. I'm not thinking that so much anymore. All right? But even now, in the life I've lived, the things I've experienced, the things I know are going to come, there is a sense of what? Uneasiness. We live in dark times, in dark situations. Sin has reaped this sort of outcome. And that's where Judah was. They were in a period of darkness, confusion. What are we going to do? How's this all going to play out? What is God going to do in our midst to see things come out in a different way? So Isaiah starts with that truth. We're all in darkness. But even before he gets to the promise, he tells us that This is going to be different. God's responding to this darkness. He's not just going to leave you there. He's not going to to cause you to to stay in that place. God's going to bring something different, something distinct. And what we see in verses 2 through 5 is that God's response is comprehensive. Comprehensive is is a way of saying it covers everything. When I first started teaching at ETBU in my uh, intro to Old Testament class, my final exam was comprehensive. A couple hundred questions covering everything we covered through the whole semester. You know what I discovered? Students didn't like those tests. They were like, that was four months ago, Dr. Pears. You really expect us to remember what you covered four months ago? Well, yeah, I kind of do. But being the compassionate, kind, generous professor that I am, I moved away from comprehensive exams. We don't have those anymore in my in my classes. I just hope and pray that they remember things. Yeah. So comprehensive means you cover it all. And God has covered it all. What is it? What is his response to this darkness? What is his response to this grief, to this this dreariness? The first response is what? It's light. It's light. There, verse 2, what's it say? People who are walking in darkness, they've seen a great light. The light has dawned. Are there any more powerful words in the creation narrative of Genesis 1 than, and God said? Let there be light. And there was. Those words instill all sorts of hope, energy, focus, purpose, direction. God's doing something new. God's doing something unique. And Isaiah echoes those words now in terms of his creative work through the sun, the one he's going to send, the Messiah he's bringing in. He is sending a great light. Jesus would echo this truth later on when he says what? I am the light of the world. To come to Jesus, to experience him as a Savior is to what? To be able to see your way forward. To lose that fearfulness, that caution, that uneasiness about where you're going and what your life means and what its purpose is and and how you're going to address this situation or not. And that Christ gives us clarity. He says, I am the good shepherd. Follow me. Where I go, you go. He says that that he came to to what? To to give us life, to give us abundance, to, to give us clarity, to give us understanding. And that's furthered even more by what? The work of the Holy Spirit. Who causes us to understand things that we previously didn't. God has met this need of the darkness. And as a consequence of that, he's given us these other benefits. Joy. This is the second. You have enlarged the nation and increased its joy. comes with victory. Victory can change the feelings of just about anything you're experiencing. My favorite sport growing up was baseball. Loved it. Played it every chance I could. I was convinced I was going to be a major leaguer. Unfortunately, you got to have speed and skill to actually get to make a league. So I never quite got there. But I didn't realize that young. I just wanted to play baseball. I loved it. And I remember one game in particular. Um, our, our elementary school, uh, sixth grade. It was a, It was the end of the year. And uh, we went to a place called Big Surf. It's a place in Phoenix that's basically just a, a big water park and we spent the day there and as was often the case when you went to big surf and spent the day there you got sunburned seriously seriously sunburned and i was i was purple my my skin was purple my back my arms all that i had a game that night and i went to the game and i played the game and it wasn't my best outing by any stretch of the imagination i was in a lot of pain from the sunburn but we won So you know what? At least for that moment sunburn didn't matter. We won. We won a big game. It was a game against one of our our rival teams. It was important and, and it was a great victory and that victory just caused all that pain to just disappear at least for a little bit. Victory can change your perspective over all of life's problems. And one of the things that God says the Savior is going to bring here is what? He's going to bring victory. He's going to bring personal victory to you. He's going to give you a means and an ability to overcome those things in your life that stand in your way. And he's going to bring what? Victory over sin itself. The darkness that enslaves us. He's brought victory over. I love the line from the song we sang earlier. O death, O sin, where is your sting? The angels roar for Christ the King. That image of of victory is is one that instills this this joy, even in the midst of some very troubling, difficult hardships of life, loss of loved ones, loss of security through uh, work or or struggles in, in school or other circumstances. Christ provides joy. Verse 4, he brings deliverance. He's overcome the oppressor. For you have shattered their oppressive yoke. That which was holding them down, that which was constraining them, you have broken it. He's brought us freedom. For freedom we have been set free, Paul tells us. The laws of sin and death no longer have a hold on us. Christ has conquered both on the cross and in his resurrection. And then the ultimate outcome of all of these things is what? Peace. For every trampling boot of battle, every bloody garment of war will be burned as fuel for the fire. Here's the thing. A lot of times when you're delivered from an oppressor, you're delivered only to find yourself under a new oppressor. You know, some great military battle or something happens, you're like, "Oh, we've been freed." And then suddenly you realize the new overlords they're as harsh and as troubling as the previous ones, sometimes worse. But Christ did not Rescue us. He did not replace our oppression with another type of oppression. He has freed us. He has brought peace. He has brought settlement. He has brought contentment. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, which is found what? Right in the heart of an expression of contentment. I can find contentment in this darkness. I can find peace in the midst of this unsettled situation. Why? Because Christ dwells in me, and Christ has brought deliverance. Everything we need to deal with the darkness God has provided in the Savior. Light, joy, deliverance, peace. How does this one king accomplish that? How is that even possible? Well, the remainder of of Isaiah's song here in in chapter 9, verses 1 through 7 is an exposition, an explanation of how the Savior can do this. What is it about him? What uh, is the nature of his promise, of his position that allows this sort of deliverance, allows this sort of peace, allows this sort of joy, this light? He tells us several things about the Savior that, that provide that sort of reality. The first thing he tells us is that the method is going to be unexpected. You see this in, in two places. You see it in at the end of verse 1. You see it at the, at the beginning of verse 6. First of all, you see it in the, in the end of verse 1 where he says that the, the salvation, the deliverance, the hope, the future is going to come by what? By way of Galilee. Why on earth would God bring salvation through Galilee? Galilee is backwaterville. That's where all the rednecks hang out. That's where the backwards people are. Remember Nathaniel in the New Testament when when uh, uh, Andrew, I believe it is, comes. It's either Andrew or Philip. I always get them confused. Comes and tells him the Messiah is here, and he's from Nazareth. And, and Nathaniel says, "What?" Can anything good come out of Nazareth? You've seen that town. Man, we, we 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 find ways to go around that town when we're traveling through this area. This is a backwater area. Can anything good come from there? Isaiah is promised right here. Yeah, God's going to use Galilee, this, this unexpected place. Why? Because... Sin is so pervasive. Sin is so involved and invested that to express the thoroughness of the deliverance that's going to happen, it has to come from the least expected place. But the second highlight here is what? Beginning in verse 6, Unto us a child is born. How's God going to bring this victory? Not a warrior on a steed. Not this grand king. He's going to start with a child. Born in a feed trough. The most unassuming, unexpected deliverer of humanity is a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes. child can only be an answer if what? If there's something inherent within him that makes him different. There are babies all over the place, and and I love babies. One of my favorite sounds in the whole world is baby laughs. Okay? You you can't keep a straight face when babies start laughing. You just can't. And you shouldn't. If you do, you're an old grouch. Get over yourself. Okay? Babies can make a difference. But for a baby to make the kind of difference that we're talking about here, there has to be something inherently different about him. Something built into him that is structurally different. And Isaiah lists that for us. What exactly is different about this child? Well, number one, his qualifications are unmatched. The first descriptor we have here is wonderful counselor. Some of the older translations divide those two, wonderful, comma, counselor. And to be honest, this list is somewhat difficult to deal with in the Hebrew. And there are multiple different ways of, of handling it, translating it, that go all the way back to the pre-Christian era, the Septuagint's handling of this text. It, it, it's, it, it's hard. And part of the reason it's hard is because people have struggled over the years. How can you say this about a baby? How can you say some of these sayings that are said here about a baby? Because this is not just any baby. This is the Savior of the world. He's wonderful counselor. The word wonderful, it, it, the word behind it, the closest word really in our language that describes the, the Hebrew word that's here is supernatural. He's beyond the norm. He's beyond the natural. He's, he's wonderful. He, he's awe-inspiring. He is someone that you look at and you say, there's a difference there. And that supernaturalness plays out most distinctively, according to the, the modifiers here, as counselor, what, expresser of wisdom. This child, this infant, possesses wisdom, supernatural wisdom. To hear him and to listen to the things he's going to instruct, the things he's going to do. The things he's going to teach is to hear something that goes beyond the normal. You can trust his advice. You can trust his direction. Okay? And that's so hard for us, again, in our culture today, to, to trust, you know, an authority, to, to trust something. No matter how many. People may tell us no matter how many examples we have. We sometimes struggle. There's a, there's a famous story of, a, of Uncle Oscar who's going on his first airplane ride. And he'd lived 60, 70 years, never been on an airplane, wasn't really sure what to what to do. Can I trust the airplane? I mean, it doesn't make any sense. This this tube of metals up there, and it's just. It's flying through the air. How, how does it stay up there? Can I trust it? And his friends assured him. His family assured him, yeah, thousands of flights every day. Oh, Oscar, you can trust it. It's going to happen. And so he finally gets on a flight, takes his flight, arrives at his destination. His family picks him up. Well, Oscar, what was your flight like? Was well, it wasn't good? And he said, well, wasn't as bad as I thought it might be. But I tell you this, I never did put all my weight down. Always reserving something, aren't we? Always holding something back. I'm not gonna give I'm not gonna put all my weight down on this plane. I'm not gonna give all my trust to that individual. I'm not gonna give all my confidence to that situation. I'm gonna hedge my bets. I'm gonna play both sides of the field if I can. I'm gonna to make sure that I come out the winner regardless of the circumstance. That's not Christianity. Christianity is wholesale, complete, thoroughgoing trust in the Savior who has called you to be His. When we declare Jesus is Lord, we're saying what? Jesus is boss. Not just over one area of our life, not just over one aspect of our beliefs, not just over one element of our mindset or our perspective, over everything we are. It's all or nothing. We place all that we are into the Savior. And we can do that. Why? Because he is the wonderful counselor. The second thing he tells us is that his authority is unquestioned. Mighty God. Some have Translated this sentence again, it's, it's one of those phrases that's hard divine warrior. In either case, the emphasis is what? He's God. He's God. He's not just a baby, he's not just a child growing up in Galilee. He was there before the earth existed. He was the one who is the word that was spoken and creation took place. He is the one who is in control of this world and how it plays out. So we need to leave things to him. Samuel Rutherford put it this way. Tasks are ours. Events are God's. When our faith goes to meddle with events and to hold account upon God's providence and begins to say, how will you do this or that? We lose ground. We have nothing to do there. It is our part to let the Almighty exercise His own office and steer His own helm. There is nothing left for us but to see how we may be approved by Him. We have tasks to do. We have assignments to carry out. But how those tasks play out in terms of events how those tasks play out in terms of outcomes that's in God's hands. I shared several weeks ago talking a little bit about my own story and history from Habakkuk. Where Habakkuk there is he's questioning God and he's saying saying, God what's going on here? Why are you going to use Babylon, the evil nation of Babylon, to carry out your goodwill in terms of punishing Judah? Why use evil for good? And I shared at that point that God's response is simply, Habakkuk, you do your job and I'll do mine. You preach the word. You proclaim the truth. You let people know why this is happening. I'll take care of and understand that Jesus is the divine warrior. He is the mighty God. He is the the expression, the very imprint, the very communication of who God is, is to understand that we need to trust him and leave things to him. Third, we see that his love is unmitigated. Everlasting Father. Eternal Father. And we need to understand, and this is very important, that that Isaiah here, the scriptures here, are not confusing the Son with the Father. This is not an expression that Jesus is God the Father. That's not what the phrase means. That's a a misrepresentation. That's a distortion of the Trinity to go that route, to, to try and use that explanation. These are phrases, these are expressions that would have been implied applied in a kingly setting. These these phrases, all of them are used of kings in other nations by those nations. They are monarchical terms. But here, Isaiah is, is drawing them in, bringing them all together into one setting to say that the one who's coming is not just a little bit of this, a little bit of that, he's all in all, everything. So the emphasis here in terms of a king being the father the, the everlasting father in that way is is to say that is an image of comfort and correction it's an image of closeness yet distinction it's an image of care and provision if your relationship is is good with your father and i realize not everybody has had a good relationship with their father but if your relationship is good with your father there's a closeness to them but there's also a distinctiveness to them. You look at your father differently than you do your mom. Okay? Mom, mom's the one you go to when, when things are, are, are rough and you just need some comfort. Generally speaking. I know there are exceptions and differences, but moms are the ones that, you know, if, if you got a boo-boo, you got a mom. Why? Because dad's going to tell you what? Put the dirt on it. Rub some dirt on it. Get on with it. Mom's going to be the one who's going to kiss it, clean it, all those other things. That's, that's generally speaking, the way it works. But when you get in those big situations or situations that are just kind of too much for you, quite often you call dad. Dad, come, come fix this. Dad, come take care of this. There's that closeness there. But yet, there's that distinction there. That's the image here. We're close to Christ. We can call him friend. But you know what? He's also king. There's a distinction there. There's a difference there. And yes, Christ does comfort us with his words of hope and joy and peace. He also corrects us. He provides for us. He takes care of us. That is the image that Isaiah is drawing on here. And with that comes this everlasting or eternal expression which in the Bible the word everlasting or eternal is always about both quantity and quality. It's about the length of time which is forever but it's also about the quality of that time which is immense. The love Christ has for us is unmitigated. There is no limitations on it. And as a result, forth his reign is unchallenged. To be the prince of peace is to what? To be the one who rules so thoroughly that peace is pervasive throughout your kingdom. There's not signs of rebellion in the hearts of people and there will be a time, there will be a day when what every knee shall bow, every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. That is the playing out of this Prince of Peace. He has that kind of authority that everything has found resolution. And so, with these truths in place, that God's response to our need is comprehensive, and that the position of the promised King is unmatched, unquestioned, unmitigated, unchallenged, we can put our trust in him. But that trust cannot be a calculated gamble. Let me put it this way. with a little illustration. There's a man named Monroe Parker. He was traveling through South Alabama on those hot Alabama days. He stopped at a watermelon stand, picked out a watermelon, asked the proprietor how much it cost, and he said it's a dollar ten. He said, uh, as he dug through his pocket, he said, "All I have is a dollar." Man said, "That's okay. I'll trust you for it." He said, "Well, that's mighty nice of you." Picked up the watermelon, started to leave, and the man said, "Wait a minute. Where are you going?" He says, I'm going outside to eat my watermelon. He said, but you forgot to give me the dollar. He said, but you said you trust me for it. He said, well, yeah, but I meant I trust you for the dime. And Parker said, friend, you weren't going to trust me at all. You were just going to take a 10 cent gamble on my integrity. So often that's how we. Trust God. We'll let him, we'll say we trust you, and we'll let him have things that are a gamble. That if they don't play out, no big deal. But the big things of life, the big moments, the big decisions, the, the lifelong commitment, the daily surrendering to God, we're not going to hand those old things over. We're going to hold those in check just in case it doesn't work out just in case he doesn't come through. I'm going to preserve, quote, my heart. I'm going to preserve my my confidence. I'm going to preserve my trust. By what? By not really trusting. By doing what's safe. Too often we make decisions, quote, for Christ, decisions in terms of our life that are, in fact, an insult to God because we basically said, I'm going to take the easier route because I really don't trust you to see me through the more difficult one. The last phrase here in verse 7, my translation renders it as as a statement, the zeal of the Lord of armies will accomplish this. It's probably actually better translated as a prayer request. May the zeal of the Lord of armies accomplish this. A response from the readers, from the hearers. We pray that this is the case. But you know what? Ultimately, for God to have the full effect of what he's going to accomplish in our lives, we have to get to that point to where we trust him to do just that. We need to give him our whole life. He doesn't want the leftovers. He doesn't want the things that are just the things that are easy for you to give. He doesn't want to be an acquaintance. He doesn't even want to be a friend. He wants to be intimately connected to you. He wants to be your one and only. He wants to be your priority. He wants to be your emphasis. He wants the phrase, Jesus is Lord, to be played out in every single aspect of our life. And He won't settle for less. He's a zealous, jealous God who won't have any rivals. I'm convinced sometimes we lose things in our life that are very precious to us because they become too precious to us. sometimes we need to be reminded that we put our confidence in things other than God himself. As we come to this time of Christmas season, the gift that is Jesus, do we see him as trustworthy? The only way you can answer that is not by Oh yeah, of course I do. But by the life we live, the commitments we make, the callings we pursue, that's where trust is evident. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for this day. Thank you for each person here, for the claim you have on their lives, God. I pray that if there's anyone here who's not Given themselves to you, not surrender their lives, not turn themselves over in a way that's meaningful, in a way that expresses true trust. God, I pray that you would draw them and that they would respond in faith. But I pray for myself and my brothers and sisters here, Lord. as Well, she would help us To not hold anything in reserve, to not view our relationship to you as a calculated gamble where we don't lose much if you let us down. Lord, help us to live lives of true commitment, true abandon. Help us to live dangerously in your hands because we know you're in control us to commit to that today. It's in Christ's name I pray.